Because I'm assuming that's not your full collection. No. Just like heavy rotation, meditational music? Uh, it's like crap rock, electronic experimental stuff, and then like some loungy exotica. It's just stuff that I've grouped together that I don't have room for elsewhere. Alphabetical? Alphabetical? Yeah, alphabetical. There's Chronological? Some autobiographical. Big city, yeah. Kansas City, how you feeling? Welcome to Center Cuts. This is episode number six. I'm your host, Patrick Spray, here with our producer, Chris Mowry. And today, we've got Mr. Brenton Cook, owner of Haymaker Records, on the line with us. Brenton, how you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a dream. Uh, we are Zooming, so everyone out there knows our, we are mask-free because we're staring at each other. Brenton said he's kind of freaked out. I'm um, seeing himself there, reflections, put that blocked out. But before we even really get into our regular schedule, I just want to say I'm looking in Brenton's study, and behind him he's got what appears to be like an armoire full of records, like vinyl. Are those CDs on another rack next to you? Yeah, there's some CDs here too. I don't, I don't discriminate. Oh, I, you, I'll, I'll <laughs> swivel around my, my room where I'm at right now. Um, what can you just because i asked you before what's your uh what how do you have those things sorted there well behind me i have um i i was really big into collecting kraut rock records for a while and mm -hmm. that's like german 70s music it's kind of hard to track down and find now so i was kind of lucky to buy some of that about 15 or 20 years ago now are those like are those like german pressings you have some cans some craft work yeah, exactly. That's that sort of stuff. Um, some of them are German pressings. A few of those got released in the U.S., but you know, a lot of them are the original German pressings. Wow, cool. And then below yes. that, what's that next section? Uh, it's like minimalist and experimental music, uh, like early synthesizer music, basically. You know, where they were taking the idea of classical music and they discovered you know you can you can create music using voltage and and transistors and uh so it's like primitive synthesizer music from the you know early 60s and uh, a lot of that stuff you've got like some brian eno in there or some uh, brian eno yes definitely philip glass philip yeah. glass john cage uh, yeah zanaka stuff like that Awesome. I just got a couple from records with Mary John Hassel and then um, I don't know if you're into Richie Sakamoto. Yeah, of course. So loud. That guy's a trip. He's great. Yellow Magic Orchestra. Have you heard that? Oh, I've got like a box <laughs> set here from uh, Japan. I told, I was into um, YMO's like first album. But over there, again, you just find all these things you can't find in the States, you know, extended remixes, all sorts of things. But, but uh, Hosono is the one I'm just starting to get into right now. I don't remember the third guy's name. They're all very prolific and still producing great music today. Yeah, I, I think uh, Sakamoto does a lot of movie scores, too. Oh, absolutely. He did some really cool stuff with um, Jobim, with the quartet from Brazil. All right, so we're going to talk about this. And then what's to the, and then what are the CDs over there? 
Um, that's, those are kind of older CDs that I have in, I have like one of those CD jukeboxes and uh, it holds like 400 CDs in there. And at some point I methodically put all those in there and like you could hook up a keyboard and type the name of the artist. So it shows up on the jukebox. Cool. So just ones that are logged in or like entered into my CD jukebox that's attached to my stereo downstairs. So this is a way of doing like, like rather than having a, an iPod or something, you know, this is before all that. Uh, you know, I just have my, all my CDs in this jukebox and I can just queue up real easily anything I want. So that sounds fantastic. I have two of those jukeboxes hooked up. So it's like 800 CDs that I can just, you know, go through and actually plays the CD rather than, you know, a digital, digital version of the song. Let me, I do want to talk about a calendar, but I have two more questions now that we're already off on the tangent. One, <laughs> sure. have you ever thrown away or given away or sold a record or CD? And then two, what are your thoughts on streaming services versus physical products? Okay, I'll answer your second one first. Uh, you know, I, I like the idea of some of the streaming stuff, um, but I'm just just me, myself. I'm a, a physical, I prefer to hold a physical copy of things, either CD, cassette, vinyl. No whatever. way. You're literally, you're literally surrounded by physical. Yeah. Products. Like, I don't even really, I don't think I even have a Spotify account. I just, I don't, I don't do that. I'll listen to like a YouTube playlist, a streaming playlist on YouTube, but yeah. I mean, some people that are into that and that's how they enjoy consuming music. I'm, I'm all for it. Whatever, whatever works for people. Stick with that for a second though, too. Cause I just go back to the jukebox. Like I've got a, actually my business partner, Jim Andrews gave me one when I moved back to Kansas city. It's like mm -hmm. a 30 CD changer and my friends or whatever, whenever people used to come over to our house, like, dude, what are you doing with that, man? And you can get all that stuff on Spotify and a place like, but no, I've got these things, actually these 30 curated, you know, selected the way I want them. Some, you know, I don't know, David Byrne lock a comp compilation leading into some, anyway, do you ever get on Spotify? Like I just got a paid account this summer because I just felt like I should have that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't think I have an account. I'm not sure. I never get on Spotify. I'll do like the YouTube playlist and I'm a big, I believe very much in uh, Bandcamp. I love Bandcamp format. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a great way for selling music and finding new music. And um, it seems very artist friendly, so. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, okay, so now you've avoided the first question. What was you, the first question? Do you ever sell back a record? Do you ever? I mean, I give stuff away all the time. I can't. Yeah, I, I, I can't sell things. I mean, like, uh, I don't, you know, I've never flipped anything on eBay or Discogs or anything like that. It's all just buying history. Um, occasionally, if I end up with some duplicates or something, I may sell them back to like a used, well, not even sell them really. Usually I'm trading them in and getting some other used product from a, from a record store. But yeah, yeah. I parting with things I'm, I'm kind of a pack rat I, I don't deal well with <laughs> getting rid of things yeah I was gonna say I think the last time I ever when cassettes turned into CDs I remember there were a couple record stores there was exile over on uh, 75th and calf and then um, um, Ann winter 
she would take old cassettes and let you trade them in for CDs, actually bootleg CDs, no, nonetheless. And I don't think I've probably done that in 30 years now. I just can't do it. I'll give it, I'll give stuff away or give things as gifts, but I just, I'm not going to sell it back. Even if it's that Backstreet Boys. I keep joking with my wife. It's, it's my retirement plan, you know? I'm sure like what stuff sells for later is never what you think it's going to, but. You mean yeah. not, not building a home out of your products? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, each episode we try to talk a little bit about our calendar in general, and it's obviously a strange time during the pandemic. Anything going on, Brenton, in the next two weeks, three weeks, month, this rest of 2020 that's on your radar, like things to check out? It doesn't have to be a concert necessarily either. Uh, a couple things. Uh, let's see. This Friday is the rescheduled version of, it's called the Lemonade, Lemonade Social. That's the right name, right? Right. It's at Lemonade Park. Uh, so it's a bunch of bands playing. Uh, Republic Tigers are the headliner. Also, Monted Odds, who I did a release on my record label, Haymaker. Mm-hmm. They're playing. And um, I'll be DJing between the sets. Like this is the last weekend, Chris and Brent. So we ought to definitely thank Voltaire, Record Bar, everybody involved um, with the crew working out there. You've really given people a lot of joy for the last, what, three months probably now, four? And uh, after going there half a dozen times myself, I just got to say it, it was a perfect model for the way you should run something like that if that continues in the future moving forward. And I think you really have built up a lot of positive feeling from the Kansas City community and artists who you've just thrown on a lifeline, really, uh, along with the ship. We just really haven't been that many other places outdoors. I really just wish we lived in a a place with uh, a climate like Arizona, where we just keep doing this and we wouldn't have to um, kind of be forced to go back indoors um, and have to test those waters. Right. Brenton, do you want to say, was there, was there one other thing that you wanted to mention? Any other events? Um, not an event necessarily, but um, today I, I got off the phone with uh, Brody Rush, and he just finished the Kickstarter for uh, his uh, Food People animated TV program. Yeah. Cool. And so, so they met their, their goal for that, and uh, he called me today to ask if I wanted to put out the, basically the soundtrack for it. So cool. the music from Grand Marquis, uh, also Beanon, and a bunch of uh, just stuff that they've put together for uh, the music and the backdrops for the, the animated series. And um, I told them I would do it. I think they're still clearing things with Grand Marquis, but um, it looks like that'll be happening pretty soon. So They, pl- they played your wedding, correct? Grand Marquis did, yeah. Um, can you tell the audience a little bit more about Brody's project or? Sure. Um, Food People is an animated series. So Brody does all of the animation with his, uh, his partner, uh, Corey. And uh, the idea is basically there's these, these little creatures these, uh, that are made out of people. They live in a refrigerator and uh, they basically teach, teach people about food. <laughs> so yeah. It's a great idea. Uh, you learn a lot, but it's also made to be kind of entertaining and it's for a broad audience. It can be for kids, it can be for adults. You know, there's, there's enough humor in it that uh, 
it spans multiple generations. So, um, but yeah. like, it's, it's like you learn a little bit about the, the food and then they'll maybe teach you how to make something afterwards, like a grilled cheese sandwich or how these different foods combine. But all of the, the, the food people have their own characters. So kind of like, I don't know, when I was a kid, we had like the letter people, you know, where you learn your alphabet that way. But this is an animated version with people that are made of food. It's really funny. It's smart. Yeah, the promos videos that I've watched are fantastic. How can people, what's the easiest way for people to find that? Because I'm a big, huge food eater and an educator. I feel like those basic skills, um, I have a 16-year-old who we're cooking together. Just so many people just don't even know about diet. Those kind of classes have been cut from schools and programs. So getting kids involved about healthy, nutritious food and how to make it is it's so necessary. And then, you know, especially right now during the pandemic too, I think parents are looking for things to keep their kids engaged besides video games 24 seven or social media. So something like this could be just great for families. Mm -hmm. I would say the best way to find out about it. Uh, there is a Facebook group for it uh, called just food people, it's food people, right? Food people. And um, I believe there's a Kickstarter still it's completed, but it's, it's kind of the homepage for all of the news related to food people. So, you know, they had a, a TV broadcast on like KSHB here locally. Yeah, I saw that. They put up some, some little promos. I don't know if they're called like sizzle reels or what, but basically little promos of it. And they have the first episode that has completely been, came out and, and aired. It's been released on the internet. And uh, they completely funded that themselves working on that during the pandemic. And um, by doing that, they were able to, you know, employ voice actors and people that are in the theater community that aren't necessarily getting a lot of work because of things being shut down. So. Right. Right. I think it was the pitch that had a nice feature on them mm -hmm. a week or two ago. Well, that's exciting news that they reached their goal. I know just like in record bars case too, I'm sure they're still, mm -hmm interested in taking more contributions when possible. Oh yeah. Um, there were two more things I didn't want to mention. And I know the first one you're certainly involved with Apocalypse Meow is this Saturday the 7th. Dang it, I keep forgetting to tell people. Today is November 2nd, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I started to introduce myself, Chris. Um, and so that is gonna be taking place virtually. I also know, Chris, you just mentioned it, it's gonna be live streamed at Lemonade Park mm -hmm. um, and that the event itself, is it being filmed from Record Bar? Yeah, they're, they're, all the performances are happening at Record Bar and being filmed there and then broadcast out. Um, and then at Lemonade Park, uh, you can go get a drink, get some food and watch the live stream gotcha. um, uh, from Lemonade Park. So it's gonna be really nice okay. on that day. That's kind of uh, one of the things that they wanted to do. Uh, it's sort of like the ending of the season. It's our last thing that we're doing out there. It's more of like a celebration of, of uh, what we did out there and celebration of, of local music and helping out a great, great cause and Abby's Fund and Apocalypse Meow. Absolutely. And Brenton, we'll, I'll probably ask you that question during like the segment where we talk about your life, your involvement with the foundation, mm -hmm. Abigail. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention too, there are some outdoor events at Raj Mahal. That's a new space open. Aaron Keller 
has been sending some great imitations out and they've got some nice lineups these next weekends. I know they're not doing, I think the, the second performance of the day, they're like 12 to three in the afternoon on Saturdays. Um, Aaron's going to be playing with Calvin Arsenia this Saturday. The following weekend, it's Lauren Crum with Jen and Martin. Following weekend, the 21st, it's Trevor Turley with Mickey P and the Swallowtails. Following weekend, Mike Dillon and Stefan. I mean, it's actually some, some, some fantastic artists here in Kansas City. Uh, it's, it'll be real interesting to see what happens this next spring. Just, you know, obviously we want to have indoor events and, and want to do everything we can to help the venues that have been here for so long in Kansas City and support them. But it is interesting to see how some of maybe these new spaces have fostered some new communities and some new relationships and perhaps partnering with them this spring and next summer. Just curious to see and excited to see, you know, where these things head. So I think that's it for the calendar. Anything else, you guys? Chris, you want to mention anything? Um, <clears throat> let me see here really quick. November 13th is Squids. They're doing a live stream from Record Bar. And also we're selling about 40 tickets to come in and see that. Um, Say that again, Chris. November 13th. November 13th. Um, and then I believe they're going to start doing the Drunken Fiddles class at Record Bar as well. And the first one of those is going to be at 11.19. Okay. So not a particular day of the week, just as... No, I'm not sure if it's going, I think it's a particular day of the week, but as far as I know, that is the first one that's confirmed. I think they were doing it out on the patio at um, uh, Golden Ox. Uh, okay. There. Laura okay. Parks and um, she does teaches like a fiddle class. Um, and I know that um, stockyards have been doing stuff right across the street outdoors. I think I mentioned the ship pretty much wrapped things up this past weekend. I think David George has an art exhibit this Friday. Did want to mention the Truman is starting to do some events, specifically open mic nights over there. So yeah, Thursdays, uh, the certain Thursday of every month, but I, I need to double check that. Everyone, please, please support these venues. Please support our artists if, you, if it's safe and you feel comfortable. Center Cuts. We're here with Brenton Cook, owner of Haymaker Records, among many other titles slash responsibilities. Uh, Brenton, I know you as a label owner, but there's a whole lot more to you. Uh, you were just talking about being a DJ. I think one of my first times really meeting you was probably getting too close to you during one of your monthly layover sessions at Minibar. Um, <laughs> I actually joke, I don't think I ever went upstairs in that place until like a year and a half ago because I never wanted to leave your DJ set. It was either you or um, 
Mike, DJ Justin Fam. I just I thought there was a downstairs. I didn't even know. But surprise, right? Great oh. upstairs too. And it's been rearranged since then. Um, yeah. Let's just talk a little bit about like growing up, mm-hmm. family. Again, you don't need to tell us everything in your life story, but from what I know, you're from St. Joe, right? No, no. No? That's just where you... I'm from uh, Harrisonville, Missouri. Oh, sorry. I'm always thinking 101 The Fox in St. Joe. No, it's Harrisonville. Harrisonville, yes. Home of the Fox. Okay. See, well, things get fuzzy. Um, (laughs) Okay. And then, is that where your family's from? Yeah, pretty much. Um, My dad grew up in a small town, Freeman, that's near Harrisonville. Uh, You know, my ancestors on the cook side date back to like the 1870s in that area so we're pretty rooted in that part of the country um okay my parents still live there my mom's a librarian at the public library there um my dad drove every day to shawnee kansas and worked at the bear uh animal laboratories um doing production work there so uh, you know, I, we were enough, we were close enough to the city that I never felt like I was a, like a country kid necessarily, but it is a small town and we didn't live in the city. So it's, it's been kind of interesting. Um, when you, when you say small town, for you, forgive my ignorance, because I still thought you were from St. Joe. What's that population <laughs> like? Like how many people are we uh, When I was growing up, it was probably about 7,000. I think now it's probably... Probably pushing 10,000 at this point. It was only 7,000? Yeah, small place. What's that like? I mean, does everybody know everybody? Like, can't get out past 11 o'clock at night without people scouting you out? Or Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's like going to school there. A lot of the people that you went to school with in kindergarten were the same people you, you graduated high school with. My class was like 185. Um, assuming there's just a few elementary schools that lead into fewer middle schools that lead into, was there just one high school? Yeah, one high school, one elementary school, one middle school. Um, we had some, some like, uh, I guess, Christian schools, I guess, you know, private. Private schools. But they didn't, they didn't carry on into high school. So, you know, whenever high school came around, we had a sudden group of people that were dumped there that, uh, you know, came over from the private school. And those are actually some of the most fun kids. They were kind of wild. Well, they probably didn't have, you know, as a teacher, I like the idea of having like a K through eight school where you get to know families over the years because that's just what happens. They kind of just matriculate through. But you also kind of get pegged as being a certain, you know, personality or kind of kid ever since first grade. And that's sometimes not easy for kids to break out of that. Um, so I imagine those those fresh kids off the boat coming into high school were like, you know, fresh meat, literally. Like, who are these guys? If I if I had walked into a elementary middle school classroom and met Brenton Cook for the first time, like, what, what would the other kids have told us about you? Or what was your, what was your, what was the word on the street about Brenton, you know? It probably depended on the year of my life, but I was always... Um... I always did really good in school, like always had straight A's, but mm-hmm. I wasn't afraid to like be a little bit of a class clown or tell some jokes or 
you know, have, let loose and have fun. So um, generally mixed well with a lot of different people. And I don't know, I would say my personality is probably not that different than what it is now. Um, I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I would say sometimes though, like you have growing up in a town that size, you have, I mean, I always had trouble kind of finding, finding my place because there wasn't always a lot of people that looked at the world the same way that I did. Listening to Krautrock? Listening to Krautrock, yeah. Do you, do you have siblings? I know. Everybody. I do, I have, I have two younger sisters. Are they in Harrisonville or are they? Um, the eldest of the two lives in Harrisonville and my other sister lives in Minneapolis and is married and oh, runs, I didn't know that. A, runs a pretty awesome uh, uh, plant store up there selling cactuses and um, tropical plants and things. Okay. Okay. So you're the oldest. I wonder if that, you know, again, maybe impacted or affected your reputation, just that you weren't the little sibling. You weren't like, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so's yeah, little brother Brenton. I definitely had to pave my own way for everything. I mean, I didn't necessarily have anyone else to speak for me, so. Okay. Uh, were you... Any, what was your relationship with music like growing up? Were you, did you play any instruments? Did you sing music in church? Well, I, when I was young, I was uh, in, the, in the school choir and uh, I uh, played in the band too. I was in, in percussion and um, basically I, I did that till I got to high school and I, I just kind of got burned out on it because I got stuck playing like the parts of the percussion that nobody wants to play. And so like when you're in marching band and you're doing like cymbals or something and it's five degrees outside and that's like kind of what you're stuck doing, you lose, you lose mo uh, momentum on that real quick. So we, we had a really great drum line when I was there. We had several uh, people in the percussion, like multiple people that were all state, you know, percussion uh, members so uh cowbell triangle <laughs> yeah i got all the auxiliary stuff i got stuck playing pretty much so i was just talking about sleigh bells you ever played any sleigh bells i've definitely played some sleigh bells i want a set of those it's like it looks like a paddle almost or something you're just sort of like rocking my cousin didn't believe like they don't have sleigh bells I'm like yeah they do dude they're everywhere in music there's some fun some fun instruments in auxiliary percussion but it's it's like uh they're not really things that are, are uh, you're not in the limelight exactly playing those in Sure. Okay. Okay. No lessons of any sort as a kid? Your parents didn't force you to do piano? No, not, not really. I mean, I wish that I, I actually wish I had taken some like piano lessons and stuff when I was a kid, but I, I never did. What were you listening to? Was there something, was there a particular spark that sent you towards music, collecting records. When did you get your first record? Oh man, it's probably one of my parents, from my parents' collections. They had a small collection of like, you know, classic rock and, and um, you know, pop music and stuff like that. And I inherited a stack of those from my parents when I got my first stereo that had a, a turntable on it. That was like eighth grade or so. You inherited or you borrowed? I kind of inherited it, I guess. I don't know. My parents didn't care about the records anymore. They were just, you know, taking up space. So 
who was on their playlist classic rock wise? I'm curious. Oh, let's see. A lot of like Leonard Skinner. Uh, my mom listened to Carol King a lot. Love Carol King. Mm. Uh huh. Uh, Billy Joel. My dad, odd, oddly enough, he he'd listen to all this like. I don't know, old 70s rock. But then he got really into Chardet. So we had like a lot of Chardet in the house growing up. Um, kind of eclectic, really. I yeah. Think. Yeah. They didn't dive deep into it like I did on later on. Um, you know, it's just I found something I was into and I would just explore it till I was tired of it almost. Diving deep, again, is probably an understatement if you can just see the small selection <laughs> CDs behind Brent right now, everybody. Uh, can't remember the first record. No, the first record that you bought. First record you, you know. Like LP, the first LP that I bought? Or 45, Hawked Your Sisters, you know, something. They've come up I, with coin. I remember when I was young, I went to this thrift store. It's probably in eighth or ninth grade. No, 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 maybe not that old. I was probably a sophomore in high school. And uh, I bought uh, Talking Head Sphere of Music at a... Ooh. at a thrift store and that was like a pretty amazing first record to buy right? yeah yeah did you had you heard their music before were you just like drawn into the record cover album cover i had heard their music but i wasn't like a, a big deep fan at that point but yeah the the record sleeve's just amazing because it's all embossed and yeah yeah cool record you don't see it too much either so i'm uh, not gonna but lucky find i'm not gonna age you exactly but you're 10 years younger than me roughly so i'm trying to think like what was the talking heads album out at that time it wasn't like little creatures or like how would you have known them i don't even remember how i knew them okay I, th I think i'd met uh one of my good friends that i still he's my dj partner at, at record bar uh daniel miller yeah listened to a lot of talking heads back then so i probably picked up on it back then from him. That's the only thing I can think of. Daniel's from Harrisonville? He's from Harrisonville, yep. I did not, I did not, well there, I didn't know that. Yeah, I've known him since fresh, he was one of the Christian school kids that came into. One of the cool kids. One of the cool kids. Okay. Um, last question I'll kind of ask you on that, were there record stores there? Like where would you find music? Oh, absolutely not, no. Yeah. Uh, that, that's kind of an interesting subject because, um, we live in such different times now. I think it's, it's hard for people to even imagine if you didn't grow up in that era, but you know, you didn't have internet where you could just listen to it online. You didn't have, um, you know, if you lived in a small town, you didn't necessarily have record stores around. So I would go up to like seventh heaven on, it's still around like vinyl undergrounds there, but, uh, yeah. you know, 75th and and Warren all that's where I would drive up to. Uh, Banster Mall was like the closest Daniel. decent area. So we'd go. Daniel's working there? He's working there now. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Because I asked that too, because when we had Steve Tulipana on, Chris, you remember we were asking him, him growing up in Liberty, like where he would go to get music. Mm. And they had to drive into Kansas City. He talked yeah. about a couple places where basically the guy was cool enough to have these like, or maybe that was in Liberty, Chris. They had like an import section or they had a... No, it was in Kansas City. Uh, but he, yeah, he was saying that like, they'd basically walk in not knowing what they were going to buy and whatever whatever those guys were playing over the speakers in the store, that would be the stuff that they'd... Money. Most likely pick up, yeah. Right, right. You're, you're so right though, Brent. I mean, 
and I, I can have a 16 year old one on 17 year old, they're never going to be able to have that feeling of like, there are only certain places where I can be exposed to some kinds of new music because they can just get everything through Spotify or actually he watches everything through YouTube, mm -hmm. uh, which is also great because it saves those kids who never would have, or adults who never would have a chance to be exposed to those kind of things stuck in their yeah, own I, world. I think it's great that, that they have that, all that ability and access to music at their fingertips. And I can only imagine what it would have been like if I were a kid and it was oh. that easy. Instead, it was like reading weird, weird, reading weird publications and, and hearing about a band and mm -hmm. only going off what the article says about what they sound like and picturing that in your head what it sounds like. And then having to seek that out, either like a mail order or drive, you know, 45 minutes away to go to a, a record store and hope that they have that CD there. Right. It's so different now and, and, and it's great. And some ways I think it's, it's, it's a good thing that we have that. And sometimes I think it's just taken for granted. It's everything is so accessible that there's no value put upon it or, you know, there's, there's, I think some, something to be learned from like the labor that goes into seeking something out and acquiring it. So totally, totally. I was just over by the old record bar space and lamenting the fact that I have not been in that half price books over there in Westport in like eight months because yeah. you know, you'd be flipping through hundreds of CDs and suddenly be like, Oh my God, this Cocteau twins remix from, from England. <laughs> Only, only $7. I got to get that. You know, you just lost that kind of discovery aspect. Well, all right. So went to high school and then did you go to Rolla? I did. I went to the uh, University of Missouri at Rolla, which now is the uh, Missouri University of Science and Technology. And was that, were you intending to study something in particular there? I went there for computer science and that's uh, what I got my degree in. It's probably best known for being in uh, the engineering school of Missouri right. and University of Missouri system. Um, okay. So I did a lot of the same engineering classes as, you know, everybody else, but my focus is on computer science and, you know, that's where I've made my career out of. So. Right. Now, what was that trans, what was that change like moving from oh, Night and day. I mean, it was still a small town. I think Rolla was only maybe 20,000 people with, university there at the time but, mm -hmm. I mean it was great to be able to meet a whole new segment of people that don't know any of your past at all and you could almost yep. like reinvent yourself so all these you know 12 years of school that I'd put through with with people from my hometown growing up I didn't have to be that person anymore I could be somebody new and I could define who that person was and I love that I think that's why and during the pandemic, it's been a challenge for the kids just starting college in that for so many of them, they've been looking to have that break from mom and dad, from home, from old reputations. And so they are eager to get off to a campus, wherever it may be, no matter how big or small. And some of them are realizing they get off to these schools now, but they're basically locked in their dorms because they it's, it's just not safe. And so they're missing out on that. When did you... When did you make the move to, because I know you did some DJing there, right? With the, with the radio station? Yeah, I, there was, a, yeah, there was a free format radio station in Rolla. It was tied with the university called KMNR. And uh, I, 
I worked my way through there. I tried out once or twice and didn't make it. Uh, they typically didn't bring on a lot of people that were only freshmen. Mm-hmm. My sophomore year, I got on with the radio station, was there until I finished school there and um, worked my way up. I did a number of different jobs from like being a librarian there. Um, at one point I was the assistant music director. Uh, I was also the business manager for one year there. So I ran all the, the business side of things with the university. Um, you know, it was, they got a certain amount of funds uh, through every student that went there, a certain portion of their, their, their school funds went directly to the, the radio station. So I was kind of in charge of um, um, making sure that we were dotting all of our I's and, uh, you know, just keeping in good with the, the school and basically every expense and every amount of money that we brought in had to be accounted for. And, and that's what I did as the business manager. But I also had, you know, a radio show that I ran every single semester that I was there. So it'd be like a three hour radio show and we were completely free format so I could play whatever I wanted. And their library at that radio station was just amazing. I mean, you could find anything. So it was, it was like a wonderland to me. Yeah. Vinyl CDs. They had, yeah, vinyl and CDs mostly. Um, We weren't doing a lot of digital back then, even though it was starting to catch on. There were radio stations that were starting to do that. Uh, Mainly CDs and vinyl. Yeah. I mean, that had to be, I didn't realize you were there for three years and had all those roles. I I knew you DJed. That had to just be a super influential time period for you, Um, not just musically, but responsibly growing up, being free. I mean, my entire, probably my last year and a half of the university, I pretty much lived in the radio station there. It was, yeah. I wouldn't even go home during the day. It's like I would be on campus, go to my classes, and then I would go to the radio station and be working there or doing my homework there. Uh, or um, they had Wi-Fi, or not Wi-Fi, but, uh, you know, we had fast internet hooked up there at the, the radio station. So I could actually do all of my computer programming work from the radio station and I loved it. I was surrounded by cool people and great music, yeah. a coffee pot and we were near a bar if we wanted to go to that. And it was just, it was a magical time. It really was. Yeah. I, we were fortunate to have um, a couple of our artists, Fritz Hutchison and Calvin Arsini go up to Lawrence or over to Lawrence to do some uh, performances at KJHK back in January and February and meeting some of the staff there um, Dakota, I mean, they, like you said, they, it seems like they just live there. It was just, just a revolving crew of people that are dedicated, whether they're recording, whether they're filming. Um, and I can see it's their, it's their thing. That's, that's what they do. They, that's, that's how they socialize and make friends and music discovery. Absolutely. All, all the, so tell me the call letters. It's KMNR. KMNR for minor. What's their, what's their numbers? <laughs> it was 89.7. Back yeah. then, I'm assuming it's still the same. I've okay. not kept in touch or with it as much as I should have since I, since then, but that's also been, you know, it's been a while since I've been there. Sure. Yeah. You're old. We'll, we'll give them a shout out. <laughs> I'll give them a little plug. Um, all right. Let's talk. So you, you finished school there. Mm-hmm. What made you, did you come straight to Kansas City? 
I did. I, uh, I'd been interviewing for a software programming job and I was lucky enough that Cerner here in Kansas City, um, I interviewed with them. I wanted to work there forever because they were from Kansas City, but I was also had a passion about healthcare. And it was kind of the center point of a lot of my, my worlds, I guess, as far as, you know, combining the healthcare and software and all this stuff. Yeah. And coming back to my hometown had, had, I had an interest in that idea. I mean, I was, I had some options at one point to maybe, you know, move to other places, but uh, for other jobs. And, but I ended up taking the job at Cerner and uh, I've been there ever since. Wow. Uh, since, yeah, 2002, I've been there for 18 years. I was just going to say, I can't imagine how much growth and change you've seen, not just within Cerner, but, you know, its relationship with the community here in Kansas City. It's crazy. When I started there, I would tell people, you know, that they'd ask where I worked and I would say Cerner and they're like, oh, I've never heard of that. And now it's like everybody in the city knows the name of that company. And so, and they've been around for a while at that yeah. point. I think they started in 1979 but uh you know in 2002 it was still a lot smaller yeah it's it's crazy now i mean their names on things and they're on the fortune 500 list and yeah company has really grown a lot since i've been there they kind of remind me a little bit of century which for me was 20th century when i worked there before leaving the country and it was just you know a lot of young people from was big eight then big eight big 12 schools people from iowa from nebraska you know coming here for good job opportunities but also for a great place to live mm-hmm. now okay so you moved here roughly 18 years ago 20 years ago tell me and i forgot to ask you about that back at home did you have like live music experiences what was that like for you before coming to kansas city did, like, did you get out to shows and stuff College. Not, not, not too much. There wasn't a lot going on in, uh, not in Raw itself. I mean, there was like maybe some bands or house parties and stuff. Right. Sometimes it seems like a lot of the kids from St. Louis would uh, drive back home to St. Louis pretty frequently because it was a lot closer. It was maybe a two hour drive, if even that, to St. Louis. Okay. Whereas for me, it was like almost three, three and a half hours to get back home. Yeah. So occasionally I would go, you know, ride with people back to their hometowns or whatever. And we, we'd explore St. Louis together. So a lot of my like really early show memories are actually, you know, St. Louis shows and stuff like that. So mm. anyone in particular that you remember? <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, I told Steve about this a few times, but uh, I remember a show in St. Louis. I, I think it was called the high point. I think it's still around. Um, but I remember we went there, we were looking for something to do. And I saw a band that was on the lineup called Season to Risk. And I was like, oh, that's, no, no, sorry. It wasn't Season to Risk. It was Unknown Pleasures. So mm-hmm. it ended up being Steve Tulipana's uh, Joy Division cover band. Yeah. So I saw that in St. Louis. And I think they opened for, uh, uh, what's, uh, captured by robots, the robot band. Mm, mm-hmm. And that was just a, kind of a mind blowing show. And I was like, Oh wait, these guys are from Kansas city too. And I didn't know any of those people at the time, you know, I was still in college, but yeah, that was a fun one. How did you, so how did you start to have some experience with the music community here in Kansas city? 
where I kind of cut my teeth on shows here in Kansas City was uh, going to the Brick. I would play uh, trivia there every Friday night. And pretty much from right after moving back to Kansas City, I did Friday night trivia at the Brick. And um, a lot of times I'd stay after for the shows and that would have been, you know, early 2000. You're seeing a lot of really amazing Kansas City bands that, um, I don't know. It was just a really good scene at that at that particular bar of that era. Mm-hmm. Saw so many good shows there. Still now, I, I still now. That's where we were planning to have Fritz's album release show. Sherry's fantastic. Been thinking of her and her staff this whole time. Um, I feel like they really are connected with like the Rural Grit on Mondays. I mean, it's family. It's seriously yep. it just you just feel so welcome there. Uh, giving out-of-town artists a chance. I saw Charlie Hunter there one time. I was like, what the heck? Like, um, It's a great so, club. Yeah, so you started to go to some performances, things like that. Tell the audience a little bit about your involvement with um, Midwest Music Foundation. How did that come about? Because I think really one of the first times I heard, saw, heard your name was on one of the compilations you had done for them. Um, which I got over there in my rack, which are just phenomenal. Like, who's who of Kansas City artists. Yeah, so my involvement with the uh, Midwest Music Foundation, I, uh, I think it was around 2009, I went to my first South by Southwest. Mm. By that point, they had already set up um, the, the showcase down there. Um, and so I went to the very first year of the showcase down at South by Southwest and um, I was not involved with the organization at any point at that point. Um, but, you know, after I came back, I was like, wow, that's a really cool organization. I'm, I'm interested in that. So I just reached out. I had some like free time and, you know, I had some skills that uh, they were probably needing some help with, which was, you know, some computer work. And I don't know, I was just willing to do whatever they needed me to do. So, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of events I did helped out with the website. Uh, you know, just whatever they needed. And then at some point, I felt like I'd been there long enough that I could kind of pitch my first project that I wanted to do. And I've always loved compilations, been a big fan of compilations. And at that point, in 2012, there had not been a a decent Kansas City compilation in several years, like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And I was just looking at it as like, there's this gap here of music that's not necessarily getting out of the city and there needs to be like some sort of time capsule of this time in this era of all this great music coming out. So I ended up doing three volumes of what was called the Midwestern audio compilations. And um, I think we put them out in 2012, 2013 and 2015. I might be off on those dates a little bit, but um, basically got every band that I, was interested at the time or, you know, involved with Midwest Music Foundation and hit them up and tried to see if they wanted to offer up a track that they had pre-recorded. You know, I was looking for mainly like unreleased material, but uh, you know, some of them are are regular cuts that are on their album and that's that's fine. Uh, I think the whole project came out really great. I'm looking at the first one. I kind of, you kind of broke up there a little bit, Brent. You were saying there'd been a gap where there just weren't compilations coming out of Kansas City at that time? Yeah, I feel like we had a lot in the 90s 
and Lawrence as well. And, you know, there was some stuff in the early day, early 2000s. I remember John Berzuk put out some stuff with, uh, uh, he had a zine, I think, and was putting out some comps. But that was like the last one that I really remember. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I had the chance to do this, I was like, there, there, it had been a while since there was a good, like, Kansas City local music comp, and I really wanted to do that. And luckily, MMF was nice enough to, you know, offer some funding to help me put this together. And um, that's that's basically where it happened. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the first volume right here. It says engineering by Pat, mixed by Pat Tomek in 2012. Do you think that's the year it came out? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, listen to this. You got antennas up. You've got Soft Reese, Grand Marquis, Heart to Darkness, Reach, Binon, Monadads. I mean, actually, several Haymaker, or who went on, I guess, to become Haymaker artists for you The Conquerors, Cowboy Indian Bear, She's a Keeper, Howard Iceberg. But I mean, this is freaking impressive, Brent. I, I remember the first time I listened, as I was cutting the grass in my backyard and put on a, an old Discman with headphones. And to me, the sign of a great album, whether it's a compilation or shape album, is if I don't go to the second side, or in this case, the second CD, I just keep playing that first one like 5,000 times. And I just, I quickly remember, this is way before Center Cut has started, I'm going to go inside and write these names down so I can go find more of this particular artist. Uh, Grizzly Hand, Cadillac Flambe, Deco Auto, De I mean, a lot of these artists still still killing it achilles so you got involved with the foundation because you you like their cause you want to talk a little bit about that too i mean i'm assuming if people are listening we should never assume so do you want to just tell about what what is the purpose of the foundation the purpose of the foundation in my mind is um it's to provide and connect uh kansas city and and midwest musicians um with with some uh, options for considering their health care and their um, uh, trying to think how I want to word this, but basically it provides a safety net uh, for musicians um, in regards to health health care. Uh, you know, because if you're a professional musician, you may have it may be if you're if you're looking at that as your primary job, it's um, takes up a lot of time, and if you get injured or something, uh, you know, those funds are just out. There's not a, a real safety net. So one of the, the arms of the organization is Abby's Fund, which um, is named for the, the founder of Abigail Henderson. And um, the goal is just basically to provide a safety net, uh, uh, provide some emergency grants uh, for musicians um, that find themselves in a tough situation. But also, you know, there's other parts of it too. It's also about music promotion. Um, they do the big showcase down at South by Southwest and it gives musicians from Kansas City and, and the Midwest a chance to be on a bigger stage and have people from all over the world have the ability to check you out rather than having to make a trip to Kansas City to hear you. They may yeah. not hear your music otherwise. Um, also just organizing uh, healthcare plans, uh, healthcare options. Uh, you know, you're able to do more if you can get a big group of people together and right and 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 look at buying healthcare and bond in bundles like that. Uh, 
I mean, they have some experts that, that can describe all that better than I can, I'm sure. But No, I, you're absolutely right. This year, especially Midwest Music Foundation has really made an effort to help artists and not just artists, people in the music industry with small micro grants uh, cannot say enough about the great work they you are continuing to do, especially now. As we've already mentioned, this this coming Saturday, of course, you'll miss it. Um, it's the thirteenth year, is that right? God, That's about right. He can't be that. I just think it's is that right? Because uh, I'm just remembering you thinking about here. You go down to the first Mid Coast Takeover too. I think Steve told us it wasn't even that name. It was something else. They had to change it. Um, but it's amazing just to see what they've been able to build, continue to develop, and grow here in Kansas City. And just just connecting dots for a lot of people too to give them the resources that they need. Yeah, I, I've been so impressed with that organization, and even seeing how it's grown since you know 2010, 2011, when I first started getting involved with it. Um, they've really got it dialed in now. I feel like um, they've got you know stuff a little more organized, having the um, the board and the staff and bringing people in to the organization from all over, all different communities of. of Kansas City and people that have different expertise in different areas, uh, you know, from from uh, insurance to healthcare funds to um, healthcare itself to emergency uh, emergency health relief to um, uh, promotion. I mean, there's all kinds of. If you're interested in volunteering, there's a number of different areas that you can get active with the organization and. You know, they do a lot in Kansas City, too, that's just, just fun, you know, like you will, they put on a handful of concerts and events throughout the year, and, um, you know, maybe you're not interested in getting all the technical side of everything, but you just like uh, being around music and being around musicians, and it's a good opportunity to get involved just for that alone. For sure. But you can find that at MidwestMusicFoundations.org? .org, yeah. Okay. They're not-for-profit. And I was going to say, too, I hadn't been down to Austin for South by until 2019 and saw you there. Have you, have you been every year since? I want to think maybe you missed one or two years. I think one year I missed because I got the flu. Uh, and then this last year, this year I was not going to be able to go and then ended up getting canceled. And right. uh, yeah, we had talked about that. Okay. Every year since 2010, I've been down there. Is that what led you to start Haymaker Records? Was it the compilations or just some experience working with artists, trying to figure out how to get their music to a broader audience? I, I would say it's a combination of all those things. Um, I really got a passion when I was working for the radio station yeah. back in Raw. And, um, uh, you know, but also, yeah, doing those first three compilations, I got to meet so many musicians and they were just really open and receptive to the idea of, you know, giving a track up for this idea that I had. And I just thought that was amazing that I could dream this up and that these people would, would be that generous with their art. And yeah. um, after doing three of those, I was like, you know, I can do this. I, I know all the ins and outs of, of, of this music industry, I guess, sort of. Um, I'm like, I, I think I can maybe run a record label and do focus on like exactly what I want to do. And um, that's kind of where Haymaker came about. And I formed it in 2014. I was going to say, so this is six plus years? Yeah, I think I'm on the yeah, sixth year. 
Okay, I had done a little bit of research. I mean, when we started the label, and we've mentioned this, at least in the first program with Jim, I mean, Brent, really, you were the first person, not including Marion, Merritt, and Ann Stewart, and Mark Manning, too, but like the first person like at a label that actually gave us some guidance. And of course, your question was like, <laughs> are you sure you guys want to do this or <laughs> why? So now I'm going to just flip that question. Oh, okay. To, you know, payback. Sure. What, I mean, did it just happen? Was that like a conscious choice? Like I'm going to start a record label? Because you, you're working for Cerner full time. That's never changed. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you've got, you know, tons of free time or something. No, absolutely not. So the question is, well, <laughs> why? <laughs> what the F are you thinking? <laughs> no, yes, why? What actually led to you and what was that process like? Your first, what, your first release? Uh, my first release was the Jorge Arana Trio, uh, the Oso EP. Oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah, uh, basically what I was noticing is some of the music that I was getting really deep deep into wasn't very well represented in Kansas City by some of the record labels that were out at the time. Okay. And, um, I don't know, I felt like there needed to be an an archive, a, a timestamp of this music um, that wouldn't have necessarily been put out in a physical form otherwise. Mm -hmm. So I had some bands that were just doing amazing things like the Jorge Arana Trio. The first time I saw them, I was like, I love this. I, I don't know any other bands that sound like this. Um, they're super tight. It's not like anything I've heard before. I mean, I'd, I'd listened to a lot of math rock and stuff before that. And that was the closest thing I could really compare their sound to what they were doing. And I, when I saw them for the first time, I was like, this is, this is the band I want to put out first. I just knew. Oh, really? I didn't know any of the guys in the band at that point. I saw them and I was like, I told them, I, you know, it's, I was starting a record label and I, I was really interested in having them be my first artist on the label. And wow. That's how that all happened. Yep. Wow. You know, and I don't think I've ever told you that, but I had gone to see, um, going to drive me crazy now, Guided by Voices at the Bottleneck in Lawrence and Schwervon opened for them. Mm -hmm. And this is before, I didn't know they, I didn't know you were working with, I don't even know if we'd even formally decided on the label. Jim had just thrown it out. And I told my friend, I went and I like, I don't know who those two are. <laughs> I freaking love them. <laughs> if I were ever to, you know, start this thing that Jim had just proposed, I, they, they'd be great. And I think your, your point is that there's so much good music out there that's not represented, that's not heard, it's not commercial, I'm putting that in quotes or whatever. And unless somebody takes the time, if the artist can't do it on their own, of course, to get that put into like eternity, on a CD or on a record, you, you can, it's going to be lost to the winds of time and just the amount of music and art that there is out there now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when you did that, was your thought always to put out vinyl? Seems like. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, the very first release I did with the, the Jorge Arana trio, my brother-in-law, who's married to my, you know, my sister in Minneapolis, I was blessed with the fact that he was an amazing screen printer and he still is, but uh, he's not really doing that as much anymore, but he did hand screen printed all of those covers, 
they're they look beautiful and yeah since it was my first release i'm like you know let's do this right so i mean the the packaging looks great uh i went and had some made pressed on like clear purple vinyl um and even though it was a only an ep it was only five songs and probably i don't know 18 minutes or so um you know we did a full 12 inch record pressing of it with the full artwork and everything we did a run of cassettes and um, yeah i mean i learned a lot from that process and and basically i just wanted to put out a really good product for my first one and um i had some pretty good pretty good ones to follow as well i mean the second album i did was uh the montad odds that has the die cut cover uh beautiful red vinyl heavy slab vinyl um that, that's a great album too um, I, I was just going to say you're, you're, and that's important definitely for my business partner Jim just the, the product, the aesthetics my point is you just you put out pretty packages um, even the cassettes like I've got several of the Mana cassettes you know people think of those as some sort of lo-fi medium but actually the sound quality is great and you can do a lot of fun things I think with the packaging of a cassette was, are, those convers- are those conversations you have with your artists? Like, do you want to put this out on vinyl? Or do you want me to put this in a, a particular sleeve? Or is that something they well, control over you? A lot of the, the artwork and stuff is, is provided from the band. So they've got their own vision of how, how the artwork and the packaging and everything works. So um, I think with, with oh, there we go. Yeah, see, that was all Diedrich's idea for doing artwork for that one so that's what i'm saying they, they like here's what we want to do Can yeah and then we just figure out if it's feasible or not um right obviously vinyl i mean it's, it's expensive to put out so it's got to be something you think you can move um you got to have a band that's that's playing out enough and has enough attention that you feel like you can sell enough records to make it worth your while you know right now did some of your background i'm just thinking about back to the the radio station you gotta learn accounting on that inventory like you know doing budgets can i get this to work if we do 500 runs things like that what are we going to sell them for yeah i mean i can do a lot of that sort of stuff i would say in general though i'm not a particular savvy business owner i mean i i didn't study you know finance or <laughs> economics or running businesses. Uh, so I, a lot of it's just been hands-on learning. It's been been a tricky but rewarding experience, I would say. I mean, gotcha. it's a really tough industry to be in too, as, as you know. Um, learning. It's not, yeah, it's not easy. It's, I mean, even if you have everything planned to a T, it doesn't necessarily mean that that people are going to buy your product, you know? Exactly. Well, I think that's what we're trying to talk with artists about. Like you could have the most incredible voice, lyrics, musical skills, look, all these things. And if you don't promote yourself, whether it's like you just said, through performances, being on social media, there's just so much music out there. You're not going to rise above, unfortunately. So you, you got to be on that game. Did you have a, a strategy when you started? Like, I'm going to put out X number of releases a year. I'm going to do this for three years. Or did you just, I'm going to put out this first one and let's see what happens and just keep 
keep going as you felt like you could continue to make progress? Yeah, I don't know if I ever had like a goal for a number of things that I could put out a year. It was more of like what came across my what came across my lap that was interesting enough to me and I had time to put out and and allocate time for. Sure. So it went anywhere from one or two releases to five. I think I did five in one year. Wow. And how many total artists did you have maybe active at one time with like releases? I think I had about five or six at one time. Okay. A few of the bands have folded or just kind of gone hiatus. Some of them have gone hiatus and then come back. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting being a musician and an artist, um, you know, there's ebbs and flows with it. Right. Right. Every, everyone I know that's worked with you as far as label owner, head honcho, whatever, has had nothing but just the nicest things to say, Brent. And what you already mentioned before, smart guy, work hard, tries to understand different people's points of view. <laughs> Sounds like somebody I'd want to work with as an artist too. Like, you're not my boss. I'm not your boss. We're partnering. So, you know, how can we make these things work out? What about any current projects going on? I'm working with the band Freight Train Rabbit Killer. Mm -hmm. um, I did a series of four seven inches with them and those did really well. That's probably the best seller of anything that I've had because, well, for one, they're just a phenomenal live band and they just tour religiously. Yeah. And, you know, that's honestly the best way to get your name out there is just tour, tour, tour and... Um, you know, they've had some really good, uh, ex some good exposure because of like the Muddy Roots Festival. Yeah. They got to play that in Europe. They've played it in the U.S. They've been like kind of a headlining act even for it. Mm -hmm. And those people, when they go to those shows and see Freight Train on there, they just go crazy. And they'll, they'll you know, you could put any price on any product. And if it was made by Freight Train Rabbit Killer and you know, involved with the band, they would probably buy it. They're that die hard. And yeah, I mean, it was just kind of a no brainer when they hit me up about um, being the record label that puts, helps them on these projects. And um, yeah. And speaking. Go ahead. No, you go right ahead. Um, so we have a, we have a full, full length album that's recorded, ready to go. Uh, we were finalizing the artwork and COVID hit. And so everything kind of went on the back burner because it's a little hard to put an album out right now, given the, you know, not every record store in the U.S. is open. Um, there's not a way for them to really tour appropriately, you know, to where they can sell this product. So we're kind of sitting on it at the moment, but the goal is, you know, put that, put that album out. And it's amazing. It's going to blow people's minds when it's ready. But we're sitting on that album. <laughs> Yeah, two things with that project. So everybody had mentioned too, there was a four-part single series. We've already talked about the creative ways they do the album design. Can you explain what that was like? The Oh, sure. Yeah, so the, the seven inches, the, the four seven-inch records, they, the covers were all screen printed by the band because their aesthetic is very much handmade. Handmade, hand screen printed artwork. Um, they make all their merch themselves. Uh, and they're 
bands are willing to kind of pay a premium to feel like they have this one of a kind piece of artwork made by the band. Mm -hmm. So we did this four seven inch records in a uh, screen printed covers that all combined together into a larger piece of artwork. The four covers form into a larger piece of artwork. And there were clues hidden in all of the artwork that basically would lead to a, I guess a hidden treasure you could call it. Yeah. Um, that is yet to be found. Nobody's <laughs> unraveled all the clues for it yet. So. Did you say that? I think one of them is sold out. The number yeah, uh, we've sold out on a few of those. Um, we've done a repressing of volume one. Because um, I've got four and I'm like, well, I'm never going to be able to win this damn prize because I can't <laughs> find the other ones. Yeah. Is, that, is that another thing potentially in the works, assuming life ever gets somewhere near normal? Yeah, I believe, I believe they've been doing some more work on their, their website and um, I believe they're going to kind of compile some of the clues that people have uncovered eventually. I mean, we would like somebody to find the prize, um, but we also don't want to just give away the location of it. It's got to be found. Sure, sure. The second one about Freight Train was, I remember they had done those live sessions where you got to go to the studio and watch them in action. Is that something that's on the album? Or am I thinking of something totally separate? No, it, that, that is absolutely, that is the album that was recorded, so. When was that? What's up? When was that? Um, let's that? see, it was April of 2019. Has it been that long? Okay. Yep, so we're, we're going on, I mean, a year and a half since the album was recorded. It took a really long time to mix it because it was kind of recorded as a live album in a way, but it was in a studio with, you know, professional, mics and you know professional rig and everything but and it wasn't necessarily recorded all in one take necessarily but it was recorded in multiple takes but with audience there in the studio right. with them so i mean yeah, that was cool that's how they yeah. prefer to perform and that's how they they wanted that energy on the recording so we basically sold um limited tickets to the recording of the album and it gave uh people that had never been in a recording studio and never yeah. seen how any of this works, it gave them a chance to experience what recording an album is like. Yeah, that was a great idea. And I would encourage you to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to remember yeah, it was, there's so much into that story too. Like the engineer that came down from Minnesota to help with that ended up getting a food poisoning or something. So he wasn't even really available for the first night of recording. Oh, geez. And then he was like out of the hospital the next day and went in and recorded the next day of, of the session. And, you know, we did it over three days. So we sold tickets for three days, but yeah, the money from the ticket sales basically helped some of our upfront costs on putting out the album, at least the recording sessions and mixing. And um, that kind of got us started on the funding of the album. So we, we will eagerly anticipate that I've got, um, Two more questions about the label. I want to sure. ask about your shirt. Uh, oh. And then let's move on to our other couple segments. Sure. What would you, any, any, so I'll just ask them both now. Any particular moment as a label you're proudest of or something that stands out? I'm not asking you to choose between artists. That's like choosing a favorite child. It's just something that's been rewarding 
preferably financially, but, and then the other question is any advice or, or like, you know, what's the hardest thing about running a record label or if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently or advice to newbie record label owners like Jim and myself, or I don't know. Any thoughts on either one of those? Okay, sure. Uh, you asked me like my favorite memory of, yeah. of running the record label. Uh, I have kind of two of them really. And they're both around um, doing these fairgrounds compilations. So, that, yeah. you know, once again, it's all back to the compilation. So I've done two volumes of that. The first one was only on cassette. Uh, the second one was uh, we did a professional CD run of them. And they're, they're basically kind of to be treated as promotional material. Like we weren't necessarily out to make money off compilations. Yeah. And um, I've, I've given away a, a lot of these CDs and stuff too over the years, but, and they're, they're for, available for free on uh, the label's band camp if you're interested in downloading music, it's free. Um, but we basically had parties around the releases of both of those. And um, the first one was, it wasn't necessarily completely tied in with Fairgrounds, but it was basically the very first record label showcase that I ever did, which was at the old record bar it had some of my favorite bands. Well, they were like all the bands on the label. So uh, that Achilles song is killer on there. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was on the the second one. Yeah, I have the second one. Yeah, I don't have the cassette. Those are both outstanding compilations, though. Thank you, thank you. So yeah, just putting those together and then having the release parties and and actually having people come out for those shows and excited to get these compilations and check out the music. And with the first one, you know, I had the big write up in um, the pitch that's about, you know, the first year and a half of the record label and talking about the, 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 the showcase that we were putting on at, at the old record bar. And mm -hmm. I was just a, a first feeling of like real pride. Like I had made it, you know, like I got my article, I got a feature in the pitch about me and the record label. And I believe that the caption on it was um, uh, the Isle of Misfits or something like that. And I felt yeah. like it was a totally fitting yeah, yeah. for the record label. Yeah. No, that's a, I totally feel you on that. It's like, you know, you're bringing something into the world and people are excited about it. Even if it's just five, 10 people, even though, as label owners, we didn't make the music. And as far as the instrumentation, we helped with mixing, mastering that, or costs and stuff. But yeah, I, I would say, where can people find those? Haymaker site? Uh, yeah, they're, they're, I think, available just off the Haymaker website, which is okay. haymakerrecords.net, and then also our band camp, which is... Um, oh, band camp. Yeah. That's where I actually heard it the first time. And then I think I picked one up at Mills or maybe at Records with Merit. Mm -hmm. we, we had plans to put out a compilation this fall slash winter to with basically what you just said it's really more just promotional purposes just getting the music into some record stores yeah. to some new audiences and then leads them to the actual albums that we've you know put out yeah it, it's a great purchase to make um to have those cds made because you know you do enough of them they become you know cds when you make enough of them become pretty affordable to just give away or yeah. something. so if somebody uh makes an order of a, a record or something, I'll always throw one of those into the package. Sure. And maybe they'll find something new that's on the label that, that they love, you know? Right. I've right. got some ideas for the label where, I mean, oh, I have a, a, a wide expanse of different 
music genres, but in a way it all kind of fits together um, musically, in my mind at least. Yeah. Oh no, I get it. Uh, any particular challenges or things that you could do all over again, or you advise someone to do or not do starting a record label? There's, there's a lot of challenges with running a record label. I will say that up front. Um, you know, it's, there's the financial side. It's a lot of um, time, just, yep. just, especially, I, I do a lot of things hands-on. I mean, almost every aspect of the, the label is done by me as far as, you know, day-to-day -day operations to, you know, um, promotions for shows, uh, planning the releases, ordering the records to be made. Uh, you know, I, I'd say probably the biggest advice that I would have is just get get people involved and and don't try to do it all yourself because it's it can become overwhelming. Yeah. And and also if you can find somebody if you could find like um, a bigger platform to share your music outside of Kansas City, that's probably been the number one hurdle is um, I'm still working on securing distribution. I think I finally have it set up, but just just getting outside of this bubble of Kansas City and getting your music elsewhere, which there's a lot of platforms for it, but so much of that gets lost so easily. I mean, there's yeah. so much music out there, so. Yeah. Um I'm glad you, I mean, I completely hear everything you're saying, Brenton. I'm glad you brought that up. We're actually going to try to have a label, a record label summit. We yeah, are I'm excited. Yes, yes. it's going to be um, November 18th, a couple weeks from this Wednesday. And we've invited about 20 different record labels here in Kansas City. And I think really the goals, and I'm going to send out that agenda tomorrow, a request for agenda items is, you know, what, what are some things that you all are doing that are working? You know, we don't want people to give away trade seekers and like that, but what are some ways where we can help each other, whether it's distribution, who we're using for manufacturing, because at the end of the day, I don't think a lot of people realize like the only way a record label makes money is if they sell records. <laughs> or, exactly. Or sets or CDs and in theory streams, right? And or sync, sync licensing if you. If which you. it's on the agenda, Brendan, trust me. Yep. And yep. again, I'm not, I'm not saying don't go support artists right now or anything like that at all. Cause they certainly need all the support they can get. But sometimes I think too, like, Hey, what about the labels? <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to support the artists. If there are no shows, we can't sell our stuff unless you have distribution, for example. And just because you have distribution doesn't mean some kid in you know Columbus, Ohio knows to go and buy your record. So I'm, I'm eager for that. And I'm grateful for your participation in that. Um, We've got the record machine, high dive, lost cowgirl. I mean, sunflower soul. It's really exciting, and that kind of all started talking with um, Sean, probably from Manor Records, at that um, one of the last events we did pre-COVID. That that record swap. Mm -hmm. I think that you and Chris Hazelton all mentioned doing something with Nick Carswell with Silly Goose up in Lawrence a few years ago. Like, yeah, that was awesome. Why don't we do that again? Like, let's. And then, you know, stuff hit the fan. Yeah, kudos for you for, for pushing forward on that, though. I mean, this is definitely something that needs to happen again. It's, we all got a lot out of it and, and enjoyed the experience. And um, there's a lot to be learned, a lot yet to 
a lot yet to be learned. So, I think though that what you mentioned at the very end though is trying to get Kansas City artists on the national radar and that discussion yes. they deserve to be is really all of our ultimate goal. Yeah. Um, okay. Last thing, because we do have a couple more segments. Chris, sure. Chris is staring into the abyss. That outer reaches shirt. What's yes. one, is that a quick plug? What's that all about? Sure. The uh, Outer Reaches Festival is a music fest that uh, my friend Diedrich Moore started. Uh, it was originally out in KCK, but the idea was um, it was kind of a uh, it was started as Kansas City Psych Fest, and the idea was to get a bunch of like-minded psych bands and and people that listen to psych music to have their own festival in Kansas City. And so there's been a number of these across the U.S., but we we didn't have a Kansas City one. And um, I went to the very first one and that was kind of how I got to know Diedrich. He had messaged MMF and asked if they had anybody that wanted to help out with this fest. And, mm. and I got asked about it and I was like, yeah, I would love to help out with this fest. And that's how our friendship came about. Okay. I, always, I already liked his band a lot at that point. And um, basically it's, I became pretty involved quickly with it after the next, the next year and the year after that and the year after that. So we've been doing it since, um, I believe it was 2000, oh, I have to check on this, 2012, I believe was the that first. That was a psych fest though, right? That was before the name change? Yeah, and then we, changed, we made a decision about three or four years ago after Steve Tulipana got more involved with it. Um, and we, we decided we needed to rebrand it because we wanted it to be more than just psychedelic rock. We wanted it to be just basically adventurous music overall. Mm -hmm. so it could be, you know, all different genres as long as you were uh, pushing the boundaries of, of the music in that genre. We were interested in what you had to do. So we've had, you know, stuff all the way from, you know, DJ, DJ scratch live turntable mixes to, um, you know, space rock bands to uh, experimental pop to just uh, math rock, uh, psych rock, you know, all these genres and sub-genres that's just, you know, music that's a little more out there and maybe it's not for everybody, but we're putting on a whole fest of just boundary pushing music. M multiple days. Now, was this, was it two years ago? Man, it's so, I feel like we just lost a year. It was Deerhoof. Was the yeah, we did. Second that 2018, yeah, that's right. Here, I immediately bought like eight of their CDs in the next week. They're so good. Blew me away. And then what was the one in the spring? Um, we did uh, Outer Reaches Explores the World. Yeah. So that was fascinating. You had Calvin with another harpist, like dueling harpists, which was phenomenal. I remember um, Enrique Chi and Juan Carlos did a set, Terry Quinn. I mean, that was, because I'm, I'm really focused on the local artists these days, not so much national artists. And I thought, well, it's going to be biannual now, right? We're going to have this twice a year. <laughs> and then it's going to be every month. And then it's going to be every week. And I wish it worked that way. I mean, there's there's so many hours that are put into planning those shows. I wish we could do. Right. So right. Uh, the, the extra bonus one that year came about because of a grant that we secured. through. Oh, the, that's right. Okay. Uh, Kansas City, uh, I forget the name of it exactly. It's um basically the, the outreach to uh, like a tourism grant, basically. Okay. Okay. Um, when it comes back, everybody, 
do yourself a favor and check out Outer Reaches in one of its many incarnations. working with our producer Chris Mowry. We are all at home alone, unmasked, feeling free and frisky. And the first segment, we talked a little bit about Brenton's life, about his involvement in the music community in Kansas City, as well as running a record label, Haymaker Records. Got a couple more questions for Mr. Cook, with the first one being, is there something you want to talk about? And by the way, thanks for being back, Brenton. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I know yeah. you're going to run away. Uh, Something good you want to talk about in Kansas City? Some positive thing, person, community that you're feeling the love for these days? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that makes Kansas City really appealing right now, I would say, is um, the fact that you can live here rather affordably compared to, you know, certain other parts of the United States. And thankfully, we're not necessarily dealing with um, wildfires and tornado. Well, we have tornadoes from time to time, but hurricanes and and flooding and you know all these things that are going on all around the U.S. and just places that are just have the cost to live there has exceeded um, has exceeded what somebody can comfortably do. You know, they had they have no more extra money for anything else, and I feel like in Kansas City you can live a pretty good life here. Um, just because you know, it's not quite as expensive as other places. And sure. um, in some ways, I, I feel like that can be um, a good thing for the music community, and it can also be a bad thing. And um, uh, I don't know. I could go into that if you want. <laughs> no, it's important because, and I completely hear what you're saying. I will say, though, that there is a feeling that that's changing in Kansas City. And not yeah, it's possible. Rents are increasing. People are being pushed out of communities that they can't afford to stay there. Um, and we could compare it to Austin and we could compare it to Denver and we could compare it to obviously to Chicago, some bigger cities. Uh, so I think the question now is how, at least for me, how do we find ways to protect that cost of living, quality of life for people who are, you know, just regular working people. They, they maybe can't afford to buy a home or, you know, they want to have a good school district for their family. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, like talking about gentrification and things like that. I mean, it's definitely something we need to be mindful of as, as the city is growing. Um, we don't want to end up like, you know, we don't want to necessarily be like an Austin where they've grown so big and so fast that 
you know, they've, they've pushed out a lot of the people in the, the downtown area and the, the, the setup for getting around the town is just terrible. The um, logistics of the city don't really work in the state that it's grown to at this point. Um, mm -hmm. We don't yeah. necessarily want that here. Um, we don't want a surge of people moving in and, and, and making it more expensive and, and harder for other people to live. But we, I think we need, also need to accept that some of that is probably going to happen just because, I mean, people are being forced out of these other areas. And, um, uh, but we can, we can do things, I guess, to be smart about how, how, how we grow. And, and ultimately, the choice of that is up to the city and the voters and, and the community. What, what do you want? Mm. Mm. And I don't think we mentioned that tomorrow's election day. So we'll, oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll save that. But, you know, to your point, I think the city made a good decision recently about offering free public transportation. I, I don't think that we have a great public transportation here in Kansas City, and that's someone who uses it. Took my students on it all the time, taught them how to use the bus. But if that's one little thing that we can do to help people that don't have a car, don't have money for insurance, don't want to deal with driving a car as well, to be able to help them get around here, I'd say the next step is how do we make those connections better? How do we make sure we get into the areas that aren't served with public transportation that have to walk five miles to get to a bus stop, for example? Yeah. But yeah, I think you're, you're aware of that as far as artists and the affordability here maybe versus some other markets. Yeah, one, one thing I wanted to say about that as far as um, the music industry goes, I feel like in some ways because it is a little bit affordable to live here, you're like you can have a job and have a band on the side and there's maybe not always the push to make that band your profession. Whereas if you were living in New York and you're like, I'm going to be a professional musician, everything gets thrown into that. And you go, you take it as far as you can take yeah. it. In Kansas City, I feel like sometimes just because of the ability to kind of do this on the side and still live comfortably and um, you maybe don't go that extra length to, to go all in. Mm. Be a good thing or that could be a bad thing. It just depends on interesting. what you're interested in doing. Very interesting. You, the fact that you can make enough money though working even part-time to potentially have a place to stay and you have basic necessities while pursuing your art has got to be very attractive but yeah. on the hand as you mentioned that also might stop people from going whole hog because it's it's perhaps more comfortable to be able to do both here than somewhere else where you get like i'm i'm gonna be a rock star and i gotta go do this 24 7. Yeah, yeah you know, I'm just thinking back to conversations like I, I had with Schwervon, for example, and in New York, they were, you know, just doing everything just to scrap by up there. It's so expensive to live in New York. And when they first moved back to Kansas City, they loved it because they were like, you know, we can tour on, on either coast and get there really quickly. But, um, you know, we're not spending every ounce of our, of our energy just yeah. barely scrape by, you know. Yeah, they focus more on the music and go on tours when they need to, and mm -hmm. so it, it worked. It worked okay for them, I think. Um, I, I also know on the flip side that I know some some bands that 
you know, maybe had a, a member in their band that, that was felt a little more settled in Kansas City and then didn't want to go touring. They they just wanted to stay here. Maybe they had a family or something. And yeah. It kind of held held the band back a little because they were not able to go on the road as much as they mm-hmm. could see. So Right. It's not it's not an easy life. It's I'm, not at all. Not like no. a professional baseball player or something. You know, you're you really I mean if you want to go big and want to go far, you have to give it your all and right. Strike up a conversation with the lonely waitress. Two sugars on my toast, yeah. It's that kind of morning. Not much to do or say. Individuals go their own way. People change like seasons changing, yeah. It's that kind of story. We were more than smoking mirrors. Oh, I've touched you myself with these two hands. I can feel my heart beat loudly. Oh, I miss you myself with my heart. Now you see me. Now you don't. All right, last question. Very patient. What's something the Kansas City music community could use? Area of need? You feel free to complain about something. I just, we always encourage people to offer solutions rather than just griping. I, I would like to get more uh, young people more actively involved in the music scene. Um, and just from my, my, my own personal standpoint, I've been going to shows you know, weekly, bi-weekly, bi-weekly for years in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. At some point, I, I just kind of realized, I'm like, I was expecting there to be this changing of the guard at some point. There would be a group of really young people that I would see at every show, and then I would feel like the old guy. And unfortunately, it's not happened as much as I, I would have liked it to. I would like to go to the show and feel like I'm the old guy and feel out of place. <laughs> I'm still seeing a lot of my friends that I've have been running around to shows with for like 15 years now. So yeah. And how you, how you get young people involved. Um, I'm not sure. I, th- I think there's some, some interesting avenues. I'm hoping a little bit that um, just this break from COVID that everybody is ready to go out and just attack the world and put on amazing events and, and support other bands and support music. And uh, that, that's my hope. Um, and there's been some really interesting things that have come about during this downtime. I really think like um, Enrique Chi's project that he's doing, getting the youth involved, that is an amazing, amazing endeavor. You probably know the name. I've, yeah, Artist Mentorship, Dear Rock. Yes, yeah. it's so good. Yeah, that's, and as a teacher, you know, how I feel about that, I mean, just two weeks ago when they did their uh, four-day festival, they had the kids collaborate with some, you know, some older artists, some nationally known artists. And if you guys have had a chance to see that, it's, you can find it on our Facebook page. It's amazing. It's amazing. So, you know, maybe having some more all ages shows, but for example, I know Record Bar, you guys let in people. I think you have to be with an adult, right, Chris? Yeah, we're 18 and up. Um... And then anybody under the age of 18 has to be accompanied by a parent or legal right. guardian. Um, okay. And okay. there's, there's 
you know, there's young bands that are out there, young people that I saw that used to have X's on their hands when they first started coming to record bar, at least the new record bar and now don't. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think there are some of that, some of that out there, but it's not as, it's not as like all mixed together as the older music scene is. And and, and like with, with the younger groups, I noticed they kind of stick to their, either their genres or they, or, or what have you, or, or their, or their groups of friends. They don't, they don't as, they don't mingle as much. I've Mm. noticed. Do you think that one of the reasons possibly for, this is for both of you is that young people have other things to do today. They've got, we've already talked about video games. They, no, I'm curious, like, you know, what you said, Brent, maybe people will come, there'll be a bum rush when all this gets kind of back to normal. Or maybe people are like, you know, I've been, happy sitting at home watching Netflix 24 seven for the past eight months. I'm really into this series or I don't need to leave my house. It, it could be. I mean, I think there's a lot, a lot of question marks going forward. Um, I, I would hope that they would, <laughs> they would come out and be ready for it. I mean, I'm, I know mm-hmm. I'm a little stir crazy in the house right now. Um, mm-hmm. One thing I would say is uh, just in general, like, uh, the economy for younger people, I think, is is harder right now than it's maybe been. the 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 share of the wealth in the country is not really necessarily always favorable to the younger generation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you're looking at like, well, what is the minimum wage now versus what was it in, you know, 1990s or 2000s? And you know, right. and, and also like the costs of shows really are for a lot of like the the smaller shows they're it's, it hasn't really changed that much in 20 years for like, you know, your local, your local show, or maybe you have like one touring band and some local, local acts. And I don't know. I just think if if there becomes a little more balance better and when we're paying our young people better salaries or better hourly wages and, you know, maybe there'll be some more money to go around. I, I have no doubts that they would be generous with their money in terms of supporting the arts and things, if, if there was a little more to go around. So mm-hmm. I wonder too, if they just don't know about it. Like they don't even know that these live performances are, are here. Like where do they, where do they get their news? Yeah. Who's talking about those things? I mean, just even- Yeah, like- there's, there's definitely a lack of, of news coverage in Kansas City right now for, for live music and, and just music in general, because uh, the printed media and even, you know, online media is just, it's really struggling right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're so appreciative to organizations like The Pitch and Kansas City Magazine. I mean, The Bridge is rocking it. But I just don't know if a 14, 16, 18-year-old is going to know to go to those places like an older dude like myself. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Chris, you have any thoughts? Um, I will say that some of the things that we've done at New Record Bar, like uh, with Billie Eilish and things like that, um, have brought in a ton of kids that then I see come to another show eight months later, you know, yeah. uh, and, and that's kind of unfortunate that we lost that, you know, because now um, who, who knows when we, we get going fully back into that stuff. Um, but I'd hear those kids in line waiting for shows to for doors to open and they'd say oh i was here for billy eilish or i was here for blah 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 um yeah 
and there's, you know, photographers and things like that, that when they'd come in, I used to have to X their hands and now they're of age. <laughs> yeah. um, so there's, there's, there's a little bit of that. Um, and I think if COVID didn't hit, we would have seen it a lot more. We probably would have seen more uh, uh, kids out at things, but um, we'll, we'll just kind of have to see as, as all this stuff moves forward. That's a really good point, Chris. I'm trying to remember that band, God, it was a year ago already. And it was getting kind of cold, but there must have been 150 teenagers sitting on the pavement outside a record bar waiting for this artist to come in. And the conversations I heard were, man, this place is cool. You know, I've never been here before. Like, of course, they were excited to see that artist too. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered, like, how many of those young people are going to come back now to see a local artist, for example, because the national artist, whose name I can't remember, brought them in. Well, I think that's the important thing too is – um, and, and sometimes the promoters have no sway on this and they, they, it, they won't budge, but like just getting a local that sort of matches the genre to mm -hmm. open some of these shows is so big, especially if the show, um, maybe it only has like, we, there was some shows where there was two bands on the bill and it was, you know, pretty busy, but the headliner played 45 minutes and they yeah. only wanted two bands on the bill. And it's like, I get yeah. it, but like, I think you should add a local to this. But of course, it's like not up to the promoter. If it was right. up to the promoter, we'd have them on all the time. But it's up right. to the agents. And the agents go, no, we don't want that. Like that takes away $100, $150 or whatever from our the national artist right. tour budget or whatever. So, right. you know. It's a double-edged well, sword. That's a whole other pot, Chris. I'm, I, that's a podcast we need to do. That whole discussion about promotion and booking. As, as far as um, young people too, I mean, I think it can also be an opportunity for us as label owners or promoters or, you know, whatever your job function is within the music industry, just finding new ways to reach out to those people. We all need to learn. We all need to do a better job of it. I need to do a better job of it. Um, yeah, so I mean, if people have ideas of how to do this, we're, I know a lot of us are all years. Yeah, let's, let's get that on the agenda here in a couple of weeks, Brenton. Yeah. It, it has been a delight, Brenton Cook. Thank mm -hmm. you very much for taking your time today. Um, as I mentioned, it's, it's a, it was a pretty short list of who to first invite onto this program that is now being heard by millions around the world. Yes. <laughs> so thanks so much for sharing your life, your, your, your career, your contributions to the music in the Kansas City music community are, are greatly appreciated by many. Um, looking forward to seeing some Haymaker releases slash events in the future. Chris Mallory, thanks as always. Uh, it's hard to believe. Wow. Number six. We're just, we're just moving right along. Wow. Um, Hope you both survive the election tomorrow. Um, we're not in revolution. Um, hope you have supplies <laughs> at home. We're very, very positive about the rest of this year in 2021 moving forward. Both of you have a lovely day. Kansas City, stay safe, stay strong. Peace out.